I see a picture of me in here. Okie dokie. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places a dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 261 is recorded live October 22nd, 2015. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we are holding on to a little bit of almost summer weather. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and there are people who are who have been getting in the water as recently as about an hour ago. Yes. So it is, well, the, the leaves may be starting to come down. In fact, that's one thing. Was was there a lot of leaves down there? Yeah, I started last, well, remember I went last week out uh-huh. there to get some shots and stuff. And I swear it was 35, 40 mile an hour wind. It just looked like it was uh, snowing leaves. Uh, so it is definitely going to start accumulating and uh, inhibit our shoreline work in our, another couple of weeks. Yeah, because what's nice is when you have a heavy current in the summer, it kind of clears out the shallow spots. But now the leaves falling, they're going to start to collect and it gets a little bit, you have to do a little bit more work to get those uncovered bottles. Just, well, that springtime runoff and the increased flow, like you said, gets rid of the leaves. But you'll remember that little special spot we found way down the line. Yes, I do. That had a lot of leaves in it, even in the you know in the late spring. Yeah, but uh, yeah, sometimes you I just get, have to do a little work and move the leaves away. Gotta get back down there. Only place I found some coin, so there must be some more of that. Uh, the, yeah, it's you're only we've only found the tip of the iceberg, Nile. Those two big boats, though, we need to sort of measure those out because where they're at and how big they are, that's really unusual. Mm-hmm. Now, when you and say boats, are you talking about the the recent finds? No, the two uh, big ones we found a couple of well, a couple of years ago mm-hmm. down at the river, past the uh, you know where the outlet comes in from the yes wastewater treatment downstream of that. There's two large boats that are one's in the embankment on the right mm-hmm. and one sideways. But they're both covered up. One of them's almost totally full of, of dirt. Okay. The other one, you can actually see the gunnels on one side. They're they're large, and I really have no clue what they are unless they're remnants from something way in the, you know way in the eighteen hundreds. Oh, really? So you think there's something that old? Well, I I think it's worth uh, taking the time to go out there, find the and do some measurements next year. Yeah, yeah, we should certainly, and that would be something you can get some of the local people interested in. Especially if we found something of significance, then we could get the uh, the, the gentleman who was working up there at the, the St. Joseph dig. Yep. Yep. The they may be interested in coming out and eyeballing what we found. Yeah, and it gets a little bit more press for everybody involved. So I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room tonight. We have Mark and Sam are both in there. And it seems like time is just slipping away. Well, it's nice to have diehard listeners too. You know, you got to give them credit. Yeah, they they stick in there. How they can put up with us sometimes? <laughs> I don't know. Especially that chat room sometimes can be a little ornery, but it seems to. And I should knock on wood. It's been not but too bad the last few weeks. 
Well, here we have an article out of, uh, this one's out of Palm Beach. They said, rip currents, winds are bringing risks to the Florida beaches. They had issued a warning to say to stay out of the water. They said the risk was rip currents. And they said that for several days, there was a high risk from them. They said most spots, people tend, most times people tend to obey the red flag rip current warnings and don't go in the water. Uh, sometimes they say they don't. It's not pleasant. Your heart goes gets going and you have to try not to panic, says bot, body. You have to keep calm and move to the right or to the left to get out of it. So he's describing what you do when you get stuck in a rip current. Uh, and he was surfing. I've never been in one, by the way. I don't think I've been in a... I haven't done a lot in the oceans. I've done... I've been out there when it's been rough, but I don't think... I would call them a rip current. Uh, if you dive the piers in a storm, you mm-hmm. will definitely find it. Remember, what the heck is that? Is that oh, you you? I <laughs> went to a different site to get that, and uh, I hate it when they automatically turn on. Yeah, that that's an annoying one. Big uh, time. Now, I've, but and, when and, you're in one, you you know it, and if you really don't know that the potential is there and mm-hmm. it grabs you. It will scare the piss out of you, yeah. and if you are not a good swimmer, uh, you can panic very easily. Yeah. I've I've been in really rough water at the beach many times. In fact, that was my dad and I when I was a kid. And I say kid, I was probably fourteen, fifteen at the time. But we would go out and just play in it. I mean, that was some of the best time was in that. It was in the strong, strong surfs and currents. Uh, but I can't say I've been diving in a rip current. It doesn't even have to be ripped. You know where the two dead zones are off the north and south side? Yes. All right. You get out there with any kind of wave action, and when you get out past the end of the piers, you no longer can swim backwards. You have to – it will carry you out, out to sea. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have scuba gear on that you can get on the bottom and crawl back, right. you're going for a ride. And if you're not expecting that, that's going to panic you because right. it's going to take you out half mile if you were on the surface or the bottom, bring you back up, and you're going to say, how can I get back? If you try to swim to shore, you're never going to make it. Right. You have to swim with that current and cut in. But if you don't know that, it can be scary. Yeah, and that's what my dad used to always teach us. You know, if it's like, you, first thing is don't panic. Yeah. And then if you go with it and, and go parallel to shore, because the rip current doesn't go forever. It only goes a certain distance, and then it Correct. eventually dies. So the matter of riding out the rip current. And then being able to go in. If it, it, both my dad and my grandfather, the the thing that they taught us is treading water. Yeah, you you had to be able to tread water for an hour. Uh, was one of the conditions we had when we were kids. So, because uh, they said about an hour, just about anywhere you're at, somebody's going to be able to help you. So as long as you can stay float. And then life life jackets don't hurt either. Hi, <laughs> they got you again. Damn it! Yes, I got the speaker off. But the the key item I was going to mention. Anytime I'm down at the beach anymore, especially mm-hmm. since I'm a little older, I take a, a life vest and a throw buoy mm-hmm. because it, and look at the drownings. They're not in 10 foot of water. They're in six foot of water and they can't stand up. Yeah. They get a little, you know, intake of water. They keep going down and up. Um, and if I'm going to go rescue somebody, I want to be able to come back because yeah. it's always the rescuers who die. Yeah. The rescuers get, get pulled under people who are thinking they're going to die are really rough. And if you've taken any life-saving courses, that's something that they like to cover. Right. I, I was out today, matter of fact, on the beach. Uh, they were surfing. Mm-hmm. All right. What does that tell you right off the bat? You got some good waves. I got some good waves. And if you took a look at the, the South Pier, you could see the rip where it would come in. 
hit the wall and then go back out. So we had some of the day. Nobody's going to be swimming the day out there. Uh, this guy's full suit, full buoyancy, but it was still fun to watch him. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I need yeah. to go out in a, in a wetsuit and just play. It is fun. Take is. a bucket board with you. It's a yeah. lot of fun. Yeah. And, and it's not crowded. You know, October and <laughs> Lake Michigan Beach, you can yeah. put your blanket wherever you want. <laughs> yeah. You, you would have needed your wind jacket today. It was a, a nice little, not not a, you know those frozen chosen breezes we get, mm-hmm. but it was enough to make you want to have something you can put up around yeah. your neck. Yeah, you get get a little bit of wind out there. You can also get a little sandblasting action going. Yeah. And then here's something else that they're having, and this time it's in California. It said El Nino. They said is the biggest in decades is bringing heavy rains and floods. Warming sea temperatures have already been a menace. But they said the most recent thing is highly venomous sea snakes. For the first time in 30 years, yellow-bellied sea snakes descended from Asian cobras and Australian tiger snakes with some of the most toxic venom in the world were found slithering across Oxnard Beach. Dana Murray said it's very unusual. She's a senior marine scientist for Santa Monica-based Heal the Bay who posted on Thursday and Friday making sightings on a blog about climate change in El Nino. It's only when we have these warming ocean events that they come into California. I'm a scuba diver. I'm in the ocean all the time, and I have never seen one. While the El Nino weather patterns may mean a 60% chance of heavy rain in Los Angeles, this winter warmer ocean temperatures have already ushered in more tropical marine life from whale sharks to pelagic red crabs to hammerhead sharks. But few expected to see the yellow bellied sea snakes it was last seen in california during the 1982-83 el nino at uh san santa clemente uh, clemente beach in orange county the black snakes with bright yellow bellies and padded tails spend most of their lives swimming in the warm ocean waters a few miles offshore found it far at sea according to uh what's it what's this uh herp herptotologists which i'm guessing is those snake people one of the most widely distributed snakes in the world, it lurks in the Indian Pacific Oceans from Africa to Asia to Australia to Central America and as far north as Baja California, Mexico. They're highly venomous, but at the same time, they're not very aggressive to humans. Don't get close, take pictures, note their locations, and report it. See, we don't have poisonous sea snakes here in Lake Michigan. When I hear the word, I don't care what it is, cobra, plus I don't care what the word is, tiger snake, <laughs> I'm a little apprehensive about playing with those, but I think they're like coral snakes. I think you're familiar with coral snakes? Yeah. Okay. The The major difference when we used to go snake hunting down in the Carolinas is moccasins um, mm-hmm. have fangs. The right. nice thing about the cobra, I mean, comparatively speaking, is they didn't really have fangs. They had more like teeth, so they didn't sort of strike and bite you with the puncture marks. Right. If you had some kind of protective on your hand or whatever, it took a little – it was harder for the coral snake to – to inject you i'm wondering if the cobra and the, and the uh, tiger snakes are the same way it, it they have they, a lot of teeth as opposed to fangs the, and that's what it kind of sounds like that they're they're really not that aggressive uh and if you look at the photo it looks like that might be they look like they have a smaller jaw than uh, some of the long fanged snakes do well i just went for the fun of it over to a picture to see if i could see what they look like and the guy's milking the freaking thing so that tells me <laughs> i do not want to don't want to mess with them. Well, kind of my my rule is if any animal, especially snakes or frogs or even insects, are really brightly colored and obvious, it's usually a sign they're poisonous. 
because they don't mind advertising who they are because they know that it doesn't take too much to learn not to mess with them. Yeah. I was trying to make a note to say fangs or teeth to see if it would tell me. Yeah. And as soon as you say cobra, though, that sort of messes up the feel because it says yes. Oh, Either way, I'm not going to play with their mouth. I'm not going to play dentist. Yeah. And I'm not going to pick them up. Yeah, that's probably a good tip is let's not put hands in the uh, in the mouths of snakes. Now, what? Or any other part of the anatomy. Okay. Oh, that's something I didn't know I had. I can mute to tab, which I am definitely doing. Okay. They said there's uh, a new report out that's saying sunscreen is killing coral reefs. I heard that before. Yep. Researchers have found high concentrations of oxybenzone, a common UV filtering compound in the waters around popular coral reefs in Hawaii and the Caribbean. In addition to killing the coral, chemical also damages the DNA in adults and deforms the DNA in corals that are in the larval stage, which reduces corals' chances of proper development. Corals are the world's most productive marine ecosystems and support commercial and recreational fisheries and tourism. This is according to John Foth, uh, co-author of the study and professor of diving enthusiast from the University of Central Florida. In addition, reefs protect coastlines from storm surge worldwide. The total value of coral reef is tremendous and they are in danger. Researchers found high concentrations of oxybenzone were found in reefs that are popular with tourists. Craig Downs, executive director and researcher from uh, an environmental laboratory in Virginia led the team of researchers. Uh, the use of oxybenzene-containing projects needs to be seriously deliberated and deliberated? Seriously deliberated? Yeah. I don't know. What do they mean by deliberated? Talked about? <laughs> in islands and areas where coral reef conservation is a critical issue, we have lost at least 80% of the coral reefs in the Caribbean, and any effort to reduce oxybenzone pollution could mean that the coral reefs survive a long, hot summer and degraded areas recover. Everyone wants to build coral nurseries for reef restoration, but this will affect, achieve little if the factors that originally killed off the reef remain and intensify in the environment. In a laboratory experiment, samples of coral larvae and cells of adult corals are exposed to concentration of oxybenzone. Researchers found that oxybenzone deforms coral larvae by trapping them in their own skeleton, making them unable to float with currents and disperse. Oxybenzone also results in coral bleaching, which is a major cause of corals dying worldwide. It makes you wonder how many parts per million does it take to generate that kind of poison? Well, that's what you wonder. Uh, is it is it a, is it a collection? Does it you know, how do these collect? So if I lather myself up, so I'm, I'm, I'm covered, so I'm not getting UV, as much UV radiation, and I go in the water, is it just slowly working off my body and that's where it collects? Is it because people are touching them? Certainly hope that they do some more research on this. And yeah, then, I used to have a, uh, an item that would tell you percentages of pollution for drinking water, how mm -hmm. much it would take of oil or gas or something to dilute it. So you could not dilute it, but to be in it mm -hmm. that made it no longer good, you know, safe for drinking. Right. And it was amazing how little it took to make it no longer safe for drinking without being boiled, filtered and whatever. Right. It doesn't take a lot. And especially with the, like with oils, they tend to disperse along the surface. Yeah. And then we have some research showing that ancient crystals, uh, 
may have been involved in Earth's early history about 4.1 billion years ago, just over 400 million years after it was first formed. They're saying it was a pretty rough place. The geological eon is even known as Hayden, named for the Greek god of the underworld. But one study suggests that life was evolving during those early days. Findings put the origin of life 300 years ahead of schedule and are already stirring up controversy. The study published recently, Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences, presents evidence in the form of zircon crystals. These minerals, which are related to cubic zirconium, which makes those uh, spoof diamonds or faux diamonds, incorporate and preserve materials from the environment as a form. The tiny crystals are basically indestructible, so they're left behind as time capsules of sorts as other minerals are lost to time. Examination of 10,000 zircons from the early days of the planet yielded one fleck of crystal with pure carbon in the form of graphite. The zircon was dated as 4.1 billion years old. Analysis of the carbon suggested it could have been formed by organic processes. That's way beyond me and my organic chemistry. Yeah, that's it's more than what most of us got. So what they're doing is they're saying they're they're kind of making inferences based on you know the uh, the dating of it, the the materials present. So they're saying that these materials, which I think are that far old, prove that life was already starting to form by that time. And Cuba has a initiative. They're trying to protect the sharks. From as soon as it loads, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't bought any. Yeah, they launched an issue to protect the sharks uh, in the pristine habitats. Um, the action plan reached through two years of collaborative research with the New York-based Environmental Defense Fund, whose imposed size and capture limit on fishermen set aside protected areas could create close seasons for shark fishing. Officials said. Now. Here's something. How long have we had relations officially with Cuba? You mean in the last year and a half? Right. I, th- I think it was just the last month. And why why do we have New York, you know, during that time, does the U- UNORC uh, Environmental Defense Fund working with Cuba? Well, that's international, right? Well, maybe. I mean, the the fund was based in New York. I guess it's possible that they could have workers throughout the world. Just because we didn't acknowledge them, if you wanted to go to Cuba, you went to Canada and you flew over. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to, matter of fact, we were down having Chinese a couple of weeks ago, and one of the guys came back and was showing us the videos he had in Cuba mm-hmm. from the summer. Right now, that's the place to go if you want to get a really nice old Harley Davidson, Harley Davidson that's still running, uh-huh. or 1957 Chevy. Uh, some of the pictures were really interesting how they, since they didn't have spare parts, made things that did work or reworked what they did have. Very ingenious. Yeah. But my point, I suppose, was you can still get there even if we weren't friendly with them. We had a lot of people visiting mm-hmm. and doing business with them via other countries. Right. And there was exemptions you could get, education or medical yeah. or and other things that would allow you to go back if you had family in Cuba. And Cuba would let you in. You could go in that way. I just, it would be interesting if they did go down now since, let's say, America really hasn't been out there with their diving efforts. Mm-hmm. And and really take a look and see what they do have. According to this, you know, the crown jewel of the Caribbean, coral reefs, mangroves, seagrasses, healthy sharks. Look at it now and just see what happens in the next 20 years if they control it and see if it continues to 
get better, stay the same, or get worse. Right. Yeah, yeah. like you said, they said Cuba is considered the crown jewel of the Caribbean, principally because the incredible coral reef ecosystems, its mangroves and seagrasses, healthy sharks means healthy corals, healthy corals mean healthy sharks. Hmm. Yeah, they don't have the industries putting right. stuff into the water in those areas. They don't have the overfishing by commercial industries like we right. do. So, I, you know, it's like a throwback of 30 years. So when they start having more industrial efforts, it'll be interesting to see what happens to the water. I'm talking about that real quick. Where do they get their fresh water from? Strictly rain and reservoirs? I would think so. And do they have any freshwater lakes or ponds? I, I just thought of that off the top of my head. I mean, they're going to have to. Any, any island country, and it's a pretty decent did you know nearly half of all Americans are missing out on a good well, night's sleep? Well, I take a look at Australia, for example. Presented by Mancini Sleep World. Desalination the right is a biggie. <laughs> I got a lot of desert, and their water table sucks. So I do, I'm just thinking about that. Pretty good-sized island. NOAA researchers in the Bay Area discovered sunken remains of a stork shipwreck. And whenever they say Bay, it's usually San Francisco. They're referring to Warren Galvin, uh... Let's see, what's it, what are they trying to get to? George Niven had already been dead seven years when Galvin was born in San Francisco, Richmond District, but all his life Galvin heard his family's whisper about Niven's demise at sea in 1920 on the Atuna fishing steamer. Photos of his 23-year-old boy's face standing in eternally as a young man. This week, discovery of the underwater remains of Latuna off the coast of San Francisco by Noah archaeologists set off a flood of nostalgia for Galvin. To have someone call me and say, I talked to you about your uncle who died 90 to 95 years ago, Galvin said in his Castro Valley home, that's unbelievable. On the under of the call was Noah archaeologist Robert Schwemmer, who was uh, along with fellow archaeologist James DeGaldo in his midst of a two-year project to catalog many of the estimated 400 ship and plane wrecks in the Gulf of uh, Faro Loans National Marine Reserve. This week, the team's research vessel pinpointed the Latuna shipwreck using sonar images that matched Latuna's unique champagne glass-shaped bow. Using remotely operated underwater vehicles equipped with a camera, the expedition was able to probe the ship's carcass, setting eyes on a brass helm, its original triple expansion engine, and a bulging load of cement still in the hold. It's the first time in 95 years anybody's seen the wreck, Schwimmer said peering into the monitor, filling images of the ship's bones. After rambling through a series of jobs, a 23-year-old Nevin had taken a job with F.E. Booth Sardine Canning Company, a path that would place him on the Latuna and its tragic last voyage. He was an ambitious young man, Galvin said, and seemed to be at the start of a very great career. So they've got a lot of these ships that they're, they're finding out there. Yeah, high-quality side scans, underwater ROVs. And deep. deep, and almost nobody else... Uh, can really get the access like they can. Yeah. I mean, no, no, there's not somebody coming over to Noah saying you can't go there. At least that we've heard of. Yeah. Yeah. One of the advantages of being in a government agency, I guess. Well, remember we talked about another one they had just relocated. Yes. Near the bridge. Remember that was uh, last year. I think we were talking about it. Yeah. And I bet it's and the again, same it's that it had been found, but it had been found and then forgotten, and then they refound it. Right. So there's lots up out there. And then uh, Lake Michigan, there's some discussion saying that uh, underwater shipwrecks could be assistance to local economies. 
and this is coming out of Wisconsin, where they have just created a large sanctuary. Wisconsin sanctuary proposal and the one from Maryland are under review with the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration taking public comments into January 2016. The Wisconsin sanctuary would encompass 875 square miles area of Lake Michigan along Wisconsin's coastline from Port Washington to Two Rivers. The sanctuary, the southern boundary, is about 27 miles north of Milwaukee, would be included in 80 miles of shoreline. Nominated areas contain extraordinary collection of of 39 known shipwrecks, 15 of which are listed in National Register of Historic Places, said John uh, Brohan. And that's a, I'm, I know I've slaughtered that one. State Archaeologist for Wisconsin Historical Society in Madison, WHS, is dedicating to preserve the historic shipwrecks and facilitating responsible diver access to the sites. It is at the forefront of the campaign to establish a sanctuary. This designation, he says, will allow us to focus on protecting these underwater museums, which are physical reminders of men and women who made their living and sometimes died working on the lake. Do you know the picture up on the right-hand side of that article? Yes. You know what that is, of course. Uh, the Ralph Summit? I've, I've heard of it. I'm not familiar with it. That's the Christmas tree. Oh, is it tree? the Christmas tree one? Yeah. That was a three-mast schooner. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a violent storm of Lake Michigan in 1912 sank that one. And uh, it was bound for Chicago with a cargo of Christmas trees. And that was off of the Two Rivers, Wisconsin. Everybody right. drowned at that particular one. But the nice part about that, that's where you have your frequent ghost sightings oh. of that particular ship on the surface and the fog banks. Well, it's, it's it, th- then the ship must be a ghost as well because it's certainly on the bottom right there. Yeah, yeah. They said the economic impact farther down the article, the news that Noah was moving forward with the proposal thrilled many, but the most enthusiasm is found in the cult communities of Port Washington, Sheboygan, Manitowoc, and Two Rivers. Greg Buckley, Two Rivers City Manager, says our community history is written on the water. Two rivers that reach the confluence of our of our harbor on Lake Michigan, the Big Lakes itself, where our location on Raleigh Point has made Two Rivers witness to many shipwrecks. Two Rivers and other communities in the mid-Lake Michigan coast have struggled with lost marine industry jobs and have succeeded in reclaiming waterfronts for recreation, education, tourism. The revitalized downtimes invested in libraries, museums, trails, and tourism initiatives. Manitowoc boasts a federally recognized port and maritime museum, a docking site for the SS Badger car ferry that crosses the lake from Ludington, Michigan. Port Washington has a deep water harbor, an award-winning lakeside park, a port explorium which focuses on marine history. Two Rivers is home of one of the uh, last commercial fishing companies on Lake Michigan, as well as dive shops, Great Lakes, Coast Guard Museum, Rogers Street Fishing Village. Visitors to these locations expect to hear about Ralph Simmons, a.k.a. the Christmas tree, the three-masted schooner, which we just talked about. As community pursuing development will turn the faces back to the water, we see establishment of a national marine sanctuary is a huge asset in terms of drawing visitors to our area and increasing public appreciation of maritime resources. Now, interestingly enough, they didn't say what benefit they're getting. Well, we, we've talked about this many times. Uh, a national sanctuary, drawing visitors, public appreciation. Uh, they're going to have sites along the lakeshore saying this is what's out there. You know, I, I'm not sure how they're, that makes it a really a nice asset. It's already there. People are already using it for vacation purposes. You're already diving. You're already fishing. 
They're already boating. I guess we're just hoping that a little bit more promotion wouldn't, wouldn't hurt. It'll be interesting. Personally, I see it as another mechanism for the government to have control over <laughs> something they can't control. Right. They can only control the people. Right. Yeah. I, so. I, yeah, I, I mean, as, as much as I like the recognition, I at some point see it as pointless. It, it's kind of like my feeling on double penalty zones. If you don't want somebody to do something, then why is, do you want them to do it less someplace else? And, and this this is where we go off in the political thing. But, okay, we say it's a hate crime, so that's much worse than a regular crime? I mean, murder is murder. I don't see right. how you'd be any different. Right, They're, and that's uh, the same thing with, with this. It's like you've already protected it, but now we're going to double protect it? If you're yeah. not going to put any money and resources into it, you really didn't gain anything by now saying it's national. So it's more of a smokescreen or just a sim- symbol than anything else. Other than I can charge you for other as, uh, items as access. They were talking about the 20%, 22% of Wisconsin is underwater. Now, I'm not sure how they mean that unless they're talking about the, the lakefront areas. It said the state's lakes and rivers contain thousands of archaeological sites. doesn't say what type including shipwrecks, the remains of trading posts, lumber mills, quarries, and other structures. I'd agree they did, but I would also concur that those old trading posts have been built over, mm-hmm. meaning there's housing areas out there. The lumber mills, we know for a fact of the ones we dive up in, up north. As they are being more developed by developing, I mean, housing, mm-hmm. there is no lumber mills. There is no more grain quarries and, you know, Seems like just overpopulation, lots of people expanding out. You're going to take over all these territories we're talking about. You're not going to have the archaeological. You're not going to have the remains of trading posts, things like this. And I don't see how making this a, you know, a uh, marine sanctuary makes any difference. Uh, I I agree with you. I don't think it does, but it does get some awareness out. Maybe get some more people interested in diving, which is good for us. And then Lake Ontario. There's been a, a new shipwreck discovered, or not a new shipwreck, it's an old one. Uh, Jim Kennard and Roger uh, Polowski found four undiscovered shipwrecks in the waters of Lake Ontario this year. The duo found another one, a propeller steamer named Bay State, which foundered in a storm off Fayhaven, New York in 1862. Discovery of the ship launched before the Civil War was announced Wednesday, October 21st. We are getting pretty discouraged when something Prop popped up in the depth finder about 15 seconds later. The side scan sonar went over. Finally, we found something. Base State is the oldest propeller-driven steamship found in Lake Ontario. It sank en route to Ohio with a cargo of general merchandise after leaving Oswego, New York, late November 4th, 1862. There were no survivors. Kennedy has been exploring shipwrecks since 1970s. Would only say the wreck is in several hundred feet of water, about seven miles North of Fairhaven, Vagnus helped guard the wreck from political looting. Oh, Vagnus. I thought Vagnus, I thought it was somebody's name. Poor kid named Vagnus. Uh, Vagnus helped guard the wreck from political looting and inexperienced divers, he said. Several hundred feet, he said? Yeah, he said several hundred feet. Inexperienced, you know, that's Darwin works. Yeah, and their time on the bottom is going to be, you know, five minutes. Well, they and go. You know, to, for a fact, you get on something like that, and you got five minutes of downtime, and you're narked. Yeah. What are you going to be able to do in five minutes? I mean, did you carry tools down there to rip off the bell? I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, they said they found the wreck around August 20th. They returned with an ROV 
and recorded image, imagery before becoming fouled in the wreck. Uh, de- debris of the Bay State snagged the ROV line. The $45,000 piece of equipment had to be left behind and retrieved a month later by divers. The duo were out canvassing a grid using database of Lake Ontario wrecks within their search boat passed over the Bay State and its debris field, which Kennard said extends about a quarter mile along the lake bottom. Debris west of the wreck site indicates a ship turned around to seek shelter from the approaching storm, which is blowing with a gale from the west. Like many ships that sank rapidly, the Bay State's upper decks were blown apart by air escaping the ship as it sank. Much of the flotsam washed ashore near Oswego and was eagerly carted away by locals. Oh, as if a Home Depot had just opened. So they they, they grab uh, shipwreck material and use it for house construction? Well, the David Dowles at uh, Five Master Schooner uh-huh. off Michigan City, when it sunk, the mask and stuff were still above water. So when the ice came up and encapsulated it, people went out on the ice and got the wood for various items, one of which was, hey, I got firewood. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> you know, when it's like, well, it's a wreck. Uh, huh. I need it to live. And for many years, you could go out because it was, um, it, you know, that shallow ice broke it up. It's mm-hmm. a freaking bubble wreck again. Yeah. And again, you had the records of it. You had the pictures of it. It's like, from the archaeological aspect, why could they not have done that? Yeah. They said between 60 and 18 people died in a wreck. Precise records of ship are scarce, he said. There's no known pictures of the Bay State. The 137-foot, 26-foot-wide, double-deck, single-masted Bay State was built in Buffalo, New York in 1852 by Bidwell and Banta shipbuilders. Chamberlain and Crawford of Cleveland was a ship owner when it sank. The ship was among the earliest propeller steamships to ply the lakes. Prior to 1841, steamships were driven by paddle wheels. Kennard said New York maritime historians are interested in knowing more about the propeller and the engine. This very old steamer yields some interesting maritime facts. Kennard, who's a member of the famed Explorers Club, has found more than 200 shipwrecks in the past 40 years. His biggest find was in 2008 when Kennard... Kennard and fellow hunter Dan Scoville discovered the 235-year-old British warship HMS Ontario, the oldest shipwreck ever discovered in the Great Lakes. I like the picture that they had up at the front of the article. Uh, I'd like to have the equipment they've got. Yeah, he's, he's got a little bit. Now, they said there's no known pictures, so what's that photo they're showing just of what it could oh, look like? like? Oh, looks like the bow section. No, but I mean outside the water because they said there's no known pictures of the ship. So they, is it just like a sister ship they're using? I, I that I don't know. Most of the articles you look up on it, since it's still recent, just have the same verbiage you have here. Mm-hmm. I've checked a dozen sites, and it says basically the same thing. Yeah. But I am looking at a picture of the Explorers, and that's not quite the boat I expected to see. That's a small boat. Yeah, that's, a, that's something that we would see us in. And I'm looking at the uh, ROV. I can't believe that cost $52,000. Well, you can get some pretty decent ones now, and maybe that's just what it was insured for, <laughs> So, yeah. if you yeah. couldn't recover it. And it's nice to see there are a lot of uh, gray hair and no hair people there. <laughs> well, that's both good and bad. There's nobody else, really. Well, you have to have somebody who can afford the gear. Yeah, Those guys look like a bunch of us retired people. Yeah. Well, but of course, I'm a poor retired person. And, and they've been doing it for a while. Yeah. So you slowly build up... Uh, some materials just just as a side note since you were talking shipwrecks uh did you that little note i sent you civil war era submarine no i didn't see that where's this one 
I put it on Skype for you. Okay, let me take a peek. This was very, very interesting because I think there's only like five submarines that were this old. And uh, quite, quite interesting when you look to the history of what happened. Okay. You maybe sent it to the other me. The I'm other seeing it. Yeah, I'm not seeing it. I, Are you uh, in our conversation? Let me let me type it see. It is it here? I just saw that. Yeah. So if you tape it, if type it into that window, I should see it. Oh, yeah, there it is. Okay. okay I didn't know if you have seen this or not, but that I read the whole article on it. Very, very interesting. You know, I saw something I didn't. I didn't. I a lot of times you see this in other countries, especially like Indonesia and stuff where they had, during World War II, stuff would sink and then storms would blow it up uh, onto the beach. So what Max sent me was a article on a Civil War-era submarine and a 137-year-old mystery behind it. So he's intrigued. Uh, so what happened is in 2001, marine archaeologist Jim DeGaldo was on a cruise ship in an unhabited island of San Telmo in the Pearl Archaeological Archaeological Arch, Archipelago. Here, I can't talk today. In Panama, where he heard a tale of a shipwrecked World War II submarine from Japan. It intrigued him, so he went to investigate, but when he saw the wreckage, he knew the submarine was not Japanese and it was much older than World War II. I knew it had a story to tell. He was right. After two two years of trying to identify the sub, a colleague sent Delgado a blueprint from a 1902 scientific journal identified the wrecked submarine. The blueprint was signed by Julius H. Coral, Kroll. K-R-O-E-H-L, dated back to 1864. Now, uh -huh. hot, now hot in the trail of submarines' mysterious history, Delgado discovered a New York Times article from 1866 detailing the long-forgotten event that occurred in a, on a New York River. A German-American engineer by name of Julius Kroll had invented and successfully tested his newest invention, a diving boat called Submarine Explorer. This is the first submarine to dive underwater, cruise around for more than an hour and a half, and then resurface. Delgado was certain the wrecked submarine had found, he found in Panama was the same submarine Kroll tested in New York in 1866. But what would that submarine be doing in a rusted out beach in Panama? Anyway, I'll, I'll give you a synopsis real quick. Uh -huh. They took it apart, took it to Panama, and what they did is they used that submarine to harvest, what do you think? Pearls. Had to be something money. You said pearls. Mm-hmm. Ah, pearls and shells. This submarine handled, as I recollect, six to eight people. It went down. They pressurized it. It went down. They pressurized a chamber of it. When that was chad, the pressure was chamberized. They had hatchways they'd open up that would reveal the bottom. They'd have more air in it so the water wouldn't come up. Right. So then they would be picking up the materials from the open hatches. Ah. So they were harvesting that. They made buku bucks. Yeah. Ergo, a problem. They didn't know about... The bends. The bends. The last episode, this guy died because he had a strange fever and illness. Duh. Yeah, decompression sickness. Talked about what they were going down. They pressurized it to 60 pounds, basically two atmospheres. Right. And for some of that, they went deeper. Mm -hmm. So they're pressurizing the sub plus that compartment going down opening up the hatches, doing the work so the, as if they're at 90 feet and they're working several hours. Button it back up, come straight back up, open the hatches and get out. Yeah, they didn't know better. No deco. Yeah. Eventually what happened is after the, the, the guy died, the other company and the people in it moved it to the island here where the divers 
they used the divers who were local who were used to diving down, free diving and getting it. Mm-hmm. And they figured they'd use the people who were accustomed to the pressure. Right. Well, the last time they did it, their last, they had worked a period of 11 days in a row, harvesting tons of shells. And afterwards, all the divers got this mysterious fever and sickness and died. Yeah. And it was sort of like, well, gee, this is sort of like a plague carrier. Maybe we'll put it on the beach and figure out what we're going to do. Right. That's where it's la- that's where it's been. Yeah, you you have to think about it. And in fact, that'd be an interesting plot for somebody to make a movie because if you didn't know better, you'd you'd almost think something supernatural. Well, when they got down to it, they're looking at that guy was so far ahead of his time to think of something like that. Well, and you could see where if if you do things, and this is how inventions, you know, your your successful inventors tend to work, is it's a lot of incremental improvements in in learning. So once you get the you get the pressure hull and you're able to control going down and you can just keep going down a little bit farther and you just do little steps, but that didn't change physics. So if you're not taking that proper time to decompress, uh, it was just inevitable that you're going to have a problem. Well, and it's interesting to be able to do the research at his own expense of stuff and take this much time to solve that, that mystery and then to find out it came from the States. Yes, and you're talking Civil War era. I sent you a picture of another link, which is a what they believe is uh, uh, what it looked like. And okay. he was ahead of his time. It was. It's really something. Now, who is the one who had the? Because there were some submarine inventors here in Southwest Michigan and Indiana. Out of Michigan City, matter of fact. Um, yes. He had two versions. He was yeah. considered one of the first submariners or designers of submersibles, and that was out of Michigan City. And if you go to the uh, museum there at the lighthouse, mm-hmm. the old lighthouse. Uh, they've got pictures and stuff. It, it's really interesting. Yeah. See, and what year was this? This would be. You're talking the same. This was after Civil War, so you're talking still 1855, 1860. Yeah. So, so this was after the Civil War then. Well, this one was yes. Oh, 1865, but, oh, but the right because he fought in the Civil War. Okay, so he, was, he, he, he may have a marine engineer for him yeah, for the so union. For the union, so he would yeah. have seen, he would have known of the Hunley and you know the the Monitor and those yes. vessels. Yeah. So we they would have started developing that plate technology of how you weld steel together and you right. make it and, tougher and. Yep, and he had a double hull, which is unusual. But if you take a look at the picture, that's also interesting. And they were going through the remnants of it, trying to figure out from a rusted hulk what you can find and they were still just amazed at the ingenuity and concepts he came across that far you know that long ago well it, it would it be worth it or is there anything to salvage for somebody to try and do a preservation on it uh did you look at the pictures <laughs> yeah it, it is it's looking pretty it's rough. a little rough to say the least that's you figure it's been sitting there what 130 years in salt water. High tide, it's gone. Low tide, you can see it rusting in salt water. Yeah. But if you do take the time, it, it, it was worth the read to go through the whole article. And there's uh, a couple of different, I wouldn't say versions of it, but uh, there are a couple of versions of it, depending on who's writing the article for them. <laughs> yes. But that is interesting. I, I like those stories. Yeah. Had some nice pictures, too. Well, then speaking of pictures and, and videos... We have a few photos and videos of the week. The first one is when I think of a sunfish, I'm thinking of when I've gone fishing and I pull something in and it weighs about a pound, maybe. (laughs) 
And I'm thinking that this sunfish might be just a touch bigger. So they're saying that, and they've got this in in video, they're, they're calling it gigantic ocean sunfish. And they said, according to oceansunfish.org, the diet of this fish consists of zooplankton like jellyfish, Portuguese man o' war, squid, sponges, and other small fish. They said it doesn't eat human, uh, eat people, which when you, you look at it, you're kind of relieved because it can get to be nine feet long and weigh 5,000 pounds. And this is a sunfish. In fact, if I hadn't seen the video, I would say this was photoshopped. Yeah, the front one sure looks to be photo. That looks like a freaking submarine. Yeah, it looks like it looks like there there are many subs that are smaller than this thing. Well, I'm looking at the the video like you said, and he dwarfs the human, but he doesn't look nearly as humongous as that first picture. Well, that was just a perfect shot. Plus, they're playing a little bit with camera angles. The camera yes. was closer to the fish, yeah. but still, I mean, this one may not be five thousand pounds, but he's seven eight feet high there's a there's a fish similar to that i believe it's called the drum fish and they're also this massive and they have been known to have sunk boats that ran into them yeah i mean if you're just there why am i going to avoid a boat yeah and he's not that deep look at for the divers to the surface yeah well imagine if one of them had the hiccups i mean he just about suck you in i mean i know he doesn't want to eat you but well i was just waiting for the water to turn brown around the diver yeah because he looked like he was tickling his belly. Yeah, yeah. If you could, if the fish could move real quick or do something, that would be a that could be a scary moment. Five thousand pounds, man. That's a lot of fish. That is. Wonder what he'd sell for. Yeah. Well, I think lucky for him, I haven't heard that there's a big market for it. Oh, there's another video down below that one. Yes. With four divers around the the fish. Yes. That is an ugly front end of the fish too. Yeah. He may be just a tad bit overweight. Oh, there's even another one behind that one. That's some good video down there. And these must be a lot deeper because you got the lights, you got the mm-hmm. blue green. Yeah. I think this is probably all the same dive, and it just depends on where they took it from, what section. But that's a nice little. I wonder if they ever get caught in those big nets and stuff. I would hope they'd be able to move right on through them. Well, they'll just hold their breath and say, nah, and make themselves negative or something. Yeah. Say the freaking boat just got the net on it. Yeah. <laughs> Take the whole boat with them. That's, that's a big fish. Did we have a link for people to see that guy? Yeah, I pasted it in the chat room, and then we'll have that in the show notes. Yeah. But uh, you can always, this one was is on a website, aplus.com, but if you go to oceansunfish.org. Yeah. I can see some of these kayak fishermen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they've got that, fun, new, buddy. Yeah, they had that new series on TV. Yeah, you're, you're, you're nothing. Just cut your line now. <laughs> yeah, do it quick. Maybe he won't know you're there. And then we have uh, some footage of a scuba diver nursing a sick eel back to health. How do you know he was sick? I don't know. I mean, is, was he acting tired? And, and The conger eels can be 10 feet? Yeah, this little head out the hole, and then they have a big, long tail. He realized the sick dweller, the sea dweller was sick, so he decided to do something about it. Uh, the diver, believed to be based in Italy, posted a touching footage of him feeding the eel to sharing websites. Uh, he said, the tiny fish he's providing are laced with medicine. Each day the man returned with more fish, helping to encourage the eel out of the rock. It's hiding in. Congers are said to live in rough ground, like reefs, stones, and wrecks. Usually in deep water around 100 meters. That's a long way down there, buddy. 
So they're prone to be caught by fishermen and are eaten as a delicacy with their bony tails being used for fish stock. I did not know that, did you? No. You never, I never really heard about eels like that being used for food. Well, I've heard of, uh, I've seen eel on menus before. I, did, I don't know which kind, but maybe it's this I, one. Yeah, I have normally saw the black eels. They harvest and they actually grow. Right. Well, you figure an eel is likely to be a juvenile growth to three meters and about 250 to 350 pounds in weight. Yeah, they say that they spawn once and then die. That sucks to be them. Yeah, you don't don't have much of a life then. They could weigh up to 250 to 350 pounds. Uh, you did to the shark attacks last week? No, I didn't. There's a couple, there was a couple of noticeable ones in Australia. There's two off of, uh, California. And one they decided afterwards was not a shark. It was an eel bite. Ooh. Now, if these guys get to be 10 foot, they got a big head. Yes. They didn't say what kind of eel they did, but the bite was sufficient that uh, I don't know if the guy died or not, or if he just lost his leg. Yeah, I, I don't know if I really care if it's shark or eel. I'd be a little upset. Well, we've seen the the, the teeth on a moray. I imagine these have the same, right? Yeah, yeah, it looks like it. Yeah, those guys get a hold of you; they're not letting go. I wonder what kind of medicine they were giving them too. And how would you know what medicine to give them? Unless you went to a you know fish slash eel doctor. Yeah, they, they they're common. You give to a guy if you're trying to help him out a little bit. Yeah, you just do a Google search for eel doctor. That's UK, wasn't it? I think they they thought it was Italy. So thought they might give him a little marijuana or something like that. You know? Yeah, <laughs> medicinal purposes only. Yeah, in his food. Yeah, it was a UK website, but they they were assuming the diver was from Italy. I take a lot of care to go up and down, you know, every day, you know, for a couple of days at depth. Yeah, well, they said that they can be down pretty deep. I'm assuming he was still in recreational limits, but yeah, it takes a little bit of effort. Yep, and some good practice, though. And we had some nice pictures. Yeah, so good photos. So that does it for scuba in the news. And I can close this down. I'm I'm gonna have to. That noise coming in drives me nuts. I sent you another little link just for fun. Uh, six pictures of that sub, the rusted Hulk. This one's from Spiegel.de? Uh, yes. Yeah, I saw the I saw the line drawing one. I don't know. Oh, that's inside. Yes. Oh, wow. Because you were talking about could you go in and make some deductions. Mm-hmm. Well, you better be an engineer. Well, I mean, they did that with the Hunley where they did the, you know, kind of like a reverse os, not osmosis, yep. but uh, wow. They, they, they used some pretty decent steel on that. Yes. Because they're walking on it, they're not. They don't act too concerned that they're going to fall through. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what makes you wonder is what's the difference between that at the top and the parts where it did break off? Did something run into it? Did somebody try and salvage it and then give up after a while? Well, after that many years, I imagine something had to happen. Yeah. I mean, how many storms? Oh, hurricanes. Certainly. How many vibrations up and down did it, it take? The original item and uh, that I thought was interesting is that was uh, powered by man. That was not an engine. It was propelled by muscle power alone. Yeah, well, yeah, that makes it a little easier not to have to to deal with combustion and fumes and batteries. Yep. And what they did is they pressurized it from like a barge off to the side, and they pressurized the sub and the, and the hatches and stuff, and then it went down. It really didn't travel a long way. It was basically, I find me a field, I go down, I go just a little bit, find where I want, and then I get all the stuff I can, then I blow ballast and come up. Right. 
And what they did, and that was an interesting factor, they were using candles for light, which, of course, takes your oxygen away. And, and again, you know, at, at, at two atmospheres, three atmospheres, your content of oxygen is higher, right? Yeah. So your candles burn pretty good. So by the time they were getting flickering, yes. they oxygen pretty good. Yeah. What they did is used a mist of water to help convert and cha- channel out the CO2. Oh. Yeah, it was like listening to those guys. That was interesting. Now, you wonder, did they understand exactly what they're doing, or is it kind of trial and error? And Yeah, well, if I spray water, the candles light better. Okay, not knowing <laughs> what they're doing. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. 1865. Not yesterday. Yeah. So let's see. Since last week, did anybody get out and do any diving on the weekend? Are you aware of? Sure. I'm going to kick that. Well, you were at the meeting. Yeah. Jake, now that he's got a wetsuit that fits, he's not staying the hell out of the water. He went out again tonight, and that's when uh, weren't sure who'd show up. And had two more divers there, and he's snorkeling. Uh, Mary Beth is under the weather, but she uh, was in the kayak, basically acting as a safety person. Not to mention they have long poles with hooks on it they're using to scrap stuff off the bottom. Uh, so I think they've been out three times this week. Oh, wow. Well, I know was, he was looking for, he had dropped the knife. And Maribeth lost a goodie bag. Goodie bag in and, the water. And so on Thursday, I know they're out. Guys were out on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and today. And wow. the water is down to 50, maybe a little below now. So it is getting a little chilly. Oh, it's, it, it's, it's perfect. I won't overheat in my dry suit now. Yeah, uh, they were saying it's more chilly when you're getting out at night and the wind is blowing and you're changing your clothes. Oh, certainly. Yes, it will do that. Because I think it's supposed to be, what, 39 tonight? Yeah. Well, this is getting to be the time of year where you, it's worth having some sort of shanty to put Yes. In. Yeah. Oh, and as, just as a quick side note, did you go outside at um, 745 tonight and look up? No, I didn't. The Space Lab went over again. Oh. Watch that. Yeah, it takes about seven minutes to go from horizon to horizon. So she's traveling about 17,600 miles an hour. A little bright light, doesn't flash, and doesn't have the nav lights on like an aircraft. But comes up just like clockwork, same area, comes right across my backyard. It was, every, we all ran out and took a look at the, watched it go by. And as we're doing that, uh, David had his computer out, looked up the satellite. Uh, you can find this online. Look up the satellite tracks, because as we're watching that one, there's another one coming across in front of it. Oh. <laughs> and, but it was a lot smaller, and, and it gives you the, the brilliancy of the object, so you'll have an idea, plus the exact tracks. Wow. And you can hold his up to the sky, and it'll tell you which satellite it is. <laughs> oh, nice. That yeah, is freaking awesome. I, I've heard of that software for, for stars, where you, you hold it up, and it will show you all the constellations. Yep, I've got that on mine because when I went camping with the with the boys, I took that with me so we could do a little bit of let's see if we can find blah blah blah, and you know it's good for about twenty five minutes for the early board, but I enjoyed it. Uh, well, that that's <laughs> yeah, what I need I, because I, I love all that you know stars and stuff, but my memory is just not good enough to be able to figure out what's who's what, and then those pictures, you know, it's the the huntsman doing whatever. And it's three stars, and somehow somebody came up with a thirty-line line drawing to correspond. Right, like the hunter and all. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's really nice having that because you can see that, and it makes more sense. And you can really see what are those bright. And, oh, that's Mars. That's Venus, and that's Mercury. Yeah. 
yeah, it, it's worth having. And if you haven't done that, people, and you got a little iPhone or something or an iPad, put the star chart on it. Go outside during summer. It is really worthwhile, at least for a day or an hour anyway. Yeah. Well, it's when you come out and visit us out in the, the rural areas where we still have light pollution in the horizons thanks to South Bend and Chicago. Uh, we do see the stars, so you can get some pretty good shots of the sky. And if you are up in Sheboygan, you can see the northern lights on occasion. And that, if you've never seen it, is awesome. And I think the best time I ever saw the northern lights was an airplane coming over Greenland one time. And if you didn't know about that and you were, you know, 500 years ago, it would scare the heck out of you. (laughs) You think that there's something happening. Oh, big time. The wrath of God is coming. Yep. Yeah. And speaking of that time of the year, the leaves are starting to turn. Yep. I think in the last couple of days, there's a couple of full-blown orange out there around me. Yep. So it's worth coming to Michigan and doing a a leaf tour. We get it. We're one of the last to turn because we get the benefits of Lake Michigan uh, preventing the frost. But we've had some frost this last week. So the bottle finding. If you go to the Mud Club site, Mac's been putting up some photos, mudclub.scoobobsessed.com. You can see some of those finds, both in the treasures and the posts. Yep. The fresh mud normally tells you who, basically a lot of times who the people were and where they were at. Some good pictures. So if you want to go dive in, look at the pictures and say, where are they at? That way, if we're not there, you can go knock yourself out and go find some bottles. You you start looking for the trees and the buildings so you can identify, triangulate where the good bottle spots are. (laughs) And basically, it's anywhere in the river, let me tell you. They move. The best thing they've been finding lately is some nice crocs and stoneware, which is older than the normal bottles. You know, one thing I have figured out about bottle finding is that you have to get in the water to find the bottles. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a prerequisite. Yeah, so... That's why. That's how come the di- the the snorkeler is beating the divers because some of the divers haven't been getting in the water. So that's it, the river's been dominating. There's been some attempts to try and get into uh, the big lake, but it's been blown off. There's some discussion of trying to get out in the Lake Michigan, at least one more time to to sink some buoys so they can don't get torn up by the ice. They really want to check out Havana A and Havana B, and I, you know, I, I want to get out there too big time. Because I remember the old days, 30 years ago, that they're finding stuff I am willing to bet is what we looked at that far, you know, long ago. Before you had GPS, every time we went out there, you dragged, you looked for something, you dove it. And I have, I am, again, even what they're finding has taglines on it. So yes. it's not like brandy new, it's just new to you. Right. And with GPS, we've been diving the same piece of, of wreckage because you go there in the spring, you throw a, uh, a buoy on it. And then you tie off to the buoy, so you're not you're not going and hitting all the external parts of the rack that you weren't aware that were there. Yep, and the viz really hasn't been that great this year, which has really surprised me. We have not had that spell. Uh, we got a little into the lake late this year again, and I think had we been in there early, we may have had some of that good that good viz. We really, it's at March and April. If you can get a, a two or three day stretch without a storm. We can get that in. So hopefully this next year, that's what we'll do. That's my goal this next year is I want to be on Lake Michigan in March. And last year, this year was the lousiest year we've done in, in 10 years, I bet you. Oh, yeah. There and, was... and that's visibility, even on the Ann Arbor 5 at 120 feet and 160 on the bottom, was 40 feet. Yeah. And the year before, we have had 80 feet. 
Oh, I, I've had it to where you can be on the line coming down, and you can see the bottom at 160 feet. So you can be, you, you've you've got over 80 feet of viz easy, and that's an impressive. That's like living it. That that's like living in a piece of art when you get to do that. Yeah, we need that next year, and really see what we got on the A and B yeah. out there. So what we're asking is if you live in South Bend or Elkhart, don't flush your toilets. Just save it. <laughs> <laughs> don't pour any oil down your drains in the or in the the roads because it will go into the river. Uh, we just need that that clear water. That's what we want. If you want to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter. We post articles all week long at Scuba Obsessed on Twitter. You can follow us that way. Also, our website www.scubaobsessed.com. You can listen to us on the RVO Radio Network, Rena Viola Outdoors. Uh, you can pick us up on a variety of live tune-in type stations. We're also on Stitcher. Uh, the fan map. We haven't talked about the fan map in a while. In fact, while we're doing it, let's go take a take a peek. I haven't seen anything. And for if you're new to the show, what the fan map is is if you go to the website which is scubaobsessed.com, we have a fan map, and you can see where all the other fans throughout the world are visiting the site. And you can put your pin in the fan map. You put in as much or as little information. So let's see. How do I describe how you get there? Maybe it's in the bottom. It's, I, I redesigned the website, and I've been working on other websites, and I tend to forget. Do I have something somewhere that says fan map? Scuba Obsessed Fan. So if you go in the footer about us and click on the Scuba Obsessed fans link, and you can see the fan map. That's probably the easiest way to do it. I probably have it in one of the other menus as well. When you say footer, what do you mean by footer, by the way? Footer is the very bottom of the website. So you've got the the header, which is the top of the website, which has the logo. Uh, our website design is a two-menu. We have a top menu, uh, and then we have a middle menu. And the middle menu, when you when you scroll that one will then be anchored to the top so it can be a little confusing and that's more of the the posts about the show and some of the sections and we're going to be adding some more as it gets colder and i can do less outside i got a lot of outdoor projects to do but as i'm forced to stay inside on the weekends in the winter and we're not ice diving i'll be doing some more with the website some features but you go down there and you go to the bottom footer and it says about us and it's got a lot of little details and one it's of them, a map. It's basically a map. I just went there. Yeah. It's it, colored map in the left quadrant. Yep. Linking at you. Yep. And you can go yep. in there and you can pin it. And we've got people from all over the world. And these are the ones who have put their pins in the map. So these are people who have listened to the show and heard me talk about this. Uh, there's also, and this, this maybe this is like a little bonus section, is if you go all the way down to the bottom, like in that little footer area, we've got uh, different streaming players to where you can listen to the show. We've got some of them you can get. You can pick up the show from TalkShoe, pick it up from Stitcher. We have uh, the Reno Viola Outdoors. We got a link right to their website. Uh, and we're on Fridays, and I need to I need to get those exact times. So we rebroadcast. A couple times on Friday on the Reno Viola Outdoor Network, but you go all the way down to the bottom, the very lowest thing. It shows uh, shows you the activity of the day of people who are visiting the site, and it gives you another map where there's dots that are red and yellow, and the yellow are people who have visited in the last 24 hours, and you can see everybody who's who's where they're coming from. And just well, a there's bit. a yellow highlighted screen. It says recent, which is just today. Yeah, United Kingdom, 
Little Rock, Arkansas, Puerto Algebra, British Brazil. BR, I don't know where that is. I think that's Brazil, isn't it? Okay. Westfield, Indiana, St. John, California, Semi Valley, California, Puerto Rico, Winter, California, South Bend, Indiana, woo-hoo, uh, Seymour, Tennessee. Yeah, South Bend might be me. Who knows where they where they give me credit? And then it shows you some of the breakdown of uh, where people come from who listen to the show. And even though we're from Michigan, by far, if you go, if if we were to use this as a gauge of interest, saying that proportionally, everybody around the world listened. Uh, California wins out almost two to one over any place else. Yeah. And let's see here. Missouri has 14 people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We need more. Yeah. 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 Florida is also another hot spot. Texas, Michigan, New York. Uh, so some some of the top areas. And that's just people who are coming to the website, not necessarily listen to the program. You can listen to the program and never visit the website, which is fine. You know what's funny? Other than Michigan and California, United Kingdom, Canada, Brazil, Australia, and France have more people than the other ones from the other states. Yeah. That's weird. Portugal, Thailand, Japan, China, Russia. Damn, you're famous. Yeah, we got people from all (laughs) over coming listen to the program. We we have tortured people with us whining about scuba diving all over the place. I'm just looking. Serbia, Venezuela, Bolivia, Nambia, Poland, Denmark. I can't even pronounce this place. Ecuador, Uruguay. That's quite a few. Vietnam, Hong Kong. That's amazing. United Arab Emirates, Indonesia, Ecuador, Denmark, Poland, Israel. Are we, are we corrupting all these people? Yes. Just They're listening to these two damn Americans. One, like, man, those guys are out the lunch. One podcast at a time. And <laughs> you know what the most popular article is on the website? It's us no. talking about how to stay warm in a wetsuit. Well, that's freaking important. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things. It's it's kind of why you get a wetsuit. At least many of us is to stay warm. So if you're a wetsuit diver, look for that article. You, know, you probably go to our search box and type in uh, wetsuit. But, but but I will tell you, it, as nice as you can be in a wetsuit, a dry suit still beats it. It does. I'm it sorry. Does. I, I hate to admit it. Once you get in that dry suit, you don't want to go back whenever yeah. it's chilly. Yeah. And I did type in wetsuit on the website in the search bar. And the very first article that comes up is tips for being warm when scuba diving, cold water, in a wetsuit. And that photo on there is Mac, myself, and Jim Kleeman doing an ice dive in wetsuits. Where is that at? I'm going to go see myself now. Yeah, yeah. And the it's got the – we talk about the triangle, which we'll be getting close to ice diving. We'll talk about it again. But that triangle always shrinks. It's kind of like a, a jack-o'-lantern. You cut it out, but then it, it shrinks somehow. Yeah, I think we're going to wind up doing a big deal one and actually having some PR, maybe some video. I mean, newscast yep. video. Yep. But well, for that one, we will definitely do it uh, by the book. The the official way. Yeah. Yeah. But that's some of the things you can get in the website. I need to get back and do some more articles, which I will. It's like, where does the time go? And you can also follow us on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash Obsessed. And uh, we always like those likes. And we try to be really light on spamming. I'm going to do a newsletter here pretty soon. And then and as I see here, I see i got some links I need to fix of images. When we moved the website, some of the images didn't come across. So I've got to fix some of those as I, as I spot them. Well, I'd say we're to that time of the show. Yes, we are. 
Well, they're talking about somebody's asking uh, New Year's Eve dive is what number? Oh, God. Let's see. 85, 95, 2015. That's got to be 40 something for me. Wow. I got my neck brace off today for the first time. Oh, so it's officially off, not you cheating. Well, no, well it's, it's off today. <laughs> it's an experiment to see how well it does without getting sore. And I will be in the water next Thursday. Oh. The, if not, well, maybe. How, how are you going to put on a, now you're going to do a wetsuit, something that zips. I don't know. I got the zippy hood if I have to, hit, if I have to use a wetsuit. Uh-huh. Yeah. I just need to get in the water. That's all you, you got withdrawals. Yeah. I will get in the hell of high water next week. I haven't figured out how yet. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say, are you ready for that time of the show? Yes, sir, I am. So I think we're going to do a two for tonight. We've got a, a little short one, which is bad enough that we need to do the other one to resuscitate you or get you out of shock. So, So here we go. All right. A male scuba diver walks out of the restroom. A girl says, sir. Your garage door is open. The guy asks, did you see my Harley? The girl says, no. I saw a mini bike with two flat tires. Next. See, uh, that's, that's why we're doing two. In this one, I'm not sure. I have, I've been, I had a hard time valida- uh, validating the source, but it, it said it's a Dan notice and it has to do with shark attacks. So it says, due to the increasing number of shark attacks on divers, Dan is urging divers to take the following precautions when diving in known shark areas. One is to wear bright colored dive gear to distinguish yourself from seals and sea lions. The second is use chemical lights to illuminate your colorful dive gear. Three is to avoid swimming in areas known to contain sea lions and seals. If you encounter a shark, swim to the bottom, lay as flat in the sand as you can. Five is learn to distinguish bull sharks, which eat seals, and sea lions from great white sharks, which eat everything. Bull sharks tend to eat items on or near the surface and can be identified by a blue-gray tint of their poo. Great white sharks tend to eat items that quickly ascend to the surface. The poo of great white sharks is full of colorful neoprene and glows in the dark. If all else fails, learn to hold your breath and stay in the bottom longer than your dive buddy. I'm not sure if that was Dan. I think somebody may be putting this on. Maybe not. But... Maybe not, Dan. So, on that note, <laughs> this is like two of them that died. Go out there and get wet. And stay safe. I see a picture of me in here. You got a jumping picture. Call recording has been completed. I got a jumping picture. Oh, there's a picture of me in the cockpit. What's the video from?